11, and I'll now invite Renee to come up and do that reading. Good morning. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the heaven during the few days of their lives. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and my concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving of the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Well, good morning, everyone. Let me add my greeting to Cameron's this morning. Very glad to have all of you along today, especially if you're visiting with us, or especially if you've uh, got family joining with you this morning. It's great to have you along. Um, as we've said before, we're a church that's on about the Lord Jesus Christ. We exist as a church family to learn about Jesus, to grow together in Jesus, and to declare to the world that Jesus is Lord. We're going to do all of that now as we come to God's Word together. And I wonder if you join me first as we pray and we ask God's blessing on our time in His Word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, the Bible. As we come to Ecclesiastes 2 now, please let us say with Job, I have treasured the words of your mouth more than my portion of food. We pray this so that we ultimately may know you more in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and grow together in him. Amen. Well, the question is, can we really rely on our stuff and our experiences to give our lives meaning and purpose, to give us security or gain? Well, certainly not if the events of the past week are anything to go by. Everyone saw the Reserve Bank raising the interest rates by a fraction of a percent, and it's made everyone incredibly nervous. It sent shockwaves through the Australian economy. Uh, wealth has started to wobble, and with it, our confidence in wealth. Well, take, for example, the scandal that has just played out in the British law courts of uh, Boris Becker, the uh, Wimbledon champion, his tennis star. 
The ginger-haired German was the first unseeded player, first male player to make it to seven Wimbledon finals. He was the first unseeded player to win the singles title at Wimbledon, aged just 17 back in 1985. Becker became a tennis legend overnight in the late 80s and early 90s. He gained all the prestige and all the prize money that came with his multiple Grand Slam wins. Of course, after he retired from tennis, he became a professional poker player as well. How about that? But it all came crashing down in 2015 when he was sued for unpaid debts amounting to about $55 million. It was a debt he absolutely couldn't pay, and eventually the courts ordered that his trophies and all his tennis collectibles be sold to try and pay for his debts. That included his 1989 U.S. Open Winners Trophy. 82 trophies and collectibles were sold, and it didn't make a dent in what he owed. He was finally declared bankrupt, and who can forget the images of him in the courthouse saying to the judge, I'm willing to give even the wedding ring off my finger to pay for my debts. But his troubles didn't end there because it was later discovered that he'd been trying to hide four and a half million pounds from the courts desperately trying to cling to his wealth. He was found guilty and sentenced to two and a half years in prison. So in a matter of decades, 52-year-old Becker has gone from center court to a cell at Wandsworth Jail, with the irony that it's only three and a half kilometers from the Wimbledon grounds where he had the world at his feet a few decades ago. It's a spectacularly tragic fall from grace tale about how wealth is no more dependable or permanent than the morning mist. And your service sheet this morning, you'll find an outline which might be helpful to you. More helpful, though, would be to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 uh, in, your, in the Old Testament so you can follow along with us today as we go through that passage together. We'll start by talking about the pursuits in verse 1 to 10. Remember that the wise preacher is on the hunt for meaning. And he's told us back in chapter 1 uh, what his plan is. <clears throat> Excuse me. He said in chapter 113, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And he expresses the same thing a little differently. In verse 3 of our reading today, he wanted to see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I remember when he says under heaven, it's a little hint that his perspective goes beyond just what happens under the sun. Under heaven means there is something more when it comes to our search for meaning and purpose. Now, depressingly, he's already told us the conclusion of his search for meaning uh, right in the first words of the book that it's all just breath, it's all temporary, it's all impermanent, it's got no substance, it's disappointing, it's frustrating, and it's confusing. But the preacher doesn't just make bold statements. He's actually got the research to back it up. You know, I remember I was at school, and we couldn't just give the answer to a, to a maths problem. We also had to show our working out. You had to show how we got there. And that was very good for me because I really got the answer right, and at least I could get some marks for trying. 
But in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the preacher shows us his working out, his method for researching pleasure and possessions. And he underlines then his conclusion, that they're also just breath and incapable of giving meaning and happiness in life. Now, it's worth noticing something very important about his method in verse 1 as we begin. Verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come, now I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So notice that he's not actually testing the pleasures themselves. He's testing his own heart. It's a little bit like he's got his heart rigged up to a sort of existential cardiac monitor. And he's going to throw things at his heart to see what makes his heart tick, what makes it race. And ultimately, he's going to then use the squiggly lines on the readouts to figure out what life is all about. So what does he try? Well, first, he starts with comedy in verse 2, with laughter. He gets tickets to all the comedy festivals. He goes to all the stand-up shows in town. He watches every comedy series on Netflix and then starts on the ones that they've banned. He searches online for every hilarious YouTube video and every amusing meme he can find. He laughs until he cries and until his belly aches. But what does he learn? It's all mad. What's the point? Because eventually, you have to stop laughing. Well, he goes for the tried and tested next. He tries drinking in verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. It might work for a little while anyway, a little buzz, a little cheer. But no sooner was it there than it's gone, only to be replaced by regrets and hangovers and health issues. Ultimately, there's no cheer at the bottom of the bottle, and he's left as empty as his last glass. Now, the preacher does say in verse 3 that through all of this, my heart was still guiding me with wisdom. Now, just a note, that's, that's not a moral statement, as though everything he's doing is honoring to God. What he's really saying is, I've, I've kept my goal in mind in all of this. I haven't abandoned the quest, the search for meaning. I still know what I'm trying to do. Well, he tries something else next. He tries projects or as he calls them, great works in verse 4. And, you know, this, this isn't just some weekend bathroom renovation. He's thrown himself into property development, into agriculture, into civil engineering, into public amenities and infrastructure in his search for meaning. You know, in, in some ways, it might seem spectacularly self-giving of the preacher. You know, he's raising the standard of living in his kingdom by investing in public works, there's a little phrase which keeps coming up over and over in these few verses that tells us that this self-giving is actually self-serving. He keeps saying, I made myself these things. And in the end, with all this activity and with so much to show for his work, his answer is unsurprising to all those who've been following him the whole way through, been following his research project so far. Hevel in the Hebrew. Breath. It's mist. It's vapor. 
finally, he turns to stuff. Mountains and mountains of things he can own. So look with me at verse 7. He says, I bought male and female slaves. Made as slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, the delights of the sons of men. Now, this was a time when slavery was common. And without getting into the the ethical discussions for a moment, it's worth noting that slaves were considered property. They were owned by their master. And so Solomon is saying, I have lots of slave capital. We're also told that he set a national record for livestock ownership. He amassed silver and gold to the point where the Bible tells us that silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. 1 Kings 10, verse 21. And the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone. It's from 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 15. I mean, who knows what that must have done to the commodities markets. And in ancient times, kings would often pay tribute to greater kings. It was like protection money. And we're told that Solomon ruled all over all the kings from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, and to the borders of Egypt. So when it to- tells us that he's got the treasures of kings and provinces, it's not, a, uh, it's not just a political statement, it's an economic one. He's got a steady stream of income. He's into music too. He owns a palace choir of men and women singers. And finally, at the end of the list, we're told in verse 8, and many concubines the delights of the sons of man. Now, it's worth noting this, this word is very difficult to translate. It could mean musical instruments, which would fit with the, the singers that's just been mentioned. We know that Solomon made harps and lyres and instruments from the best timber for his palace musicians. Uh, the word could also mean cupbearers, like those who looked after the wine that he was drinking in verse 3. Clearly, he needed many. Or, of course, it could mean concubine, of which we know that Solomon had 300 from 1 Kings 11, verse 3. Uh, being a concubine, was, it was a formal relationship like a marriage, but concubines had fewer rights than a wife, and their role really was just to provide status and pleasure to the husband. I don't think it really matters, though, because the point's the same. Whether it's sex or stuff, The picture we get of Solomon is that his motto for life is go big or go home. And as he goes on to say in verse 9 and 10, So I became great, and I surpassed all who were in Jerusalem before me. Also my wisdom remained with with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. You know, there really is no one living or dead, who can compare to King Solomon. Who ruled, this was the king who ruled in Israel in the middle of the 10th century BC. You can kind of imagine him as a, a weird mix of, of Elon Musk and Bill Gates and the Sultan of, of Bruno. When he says he's tried it all, he literally has. 
He has the resources and the resourcefulness to pursue anything his heart desires and to pursue it all the way. If anyone can go down the rabbit hole, as far as the rabbit hole will possibly go, it's Solomon. He's tried it all. He's seen it all. He's done it all. He's got the T-shirt. And it's made from golden thread with diamond-encrusted letters on the front. And his wisdom has stayed with him through all this. He hasn't lost sight of his quest, of what he's trying to do. But what does he find when he gets to the very bottom of pleasure and possessions? Verse 10 says he does find some pleasure in working for something and seeing the results of work, but it's not enough. You know what? It it never was. So eventually we, in verse 11, we wake up with the preacher on the morning after the lavish hedonistic bender of verse 1 to 10. The preacher's got a headache. There's a bitter taste in his mouth empty ache in his belly. The lights are too bright. The sounds are too loud. And even though everything is a little bit fuzzy around the edges, there's one thing that he sees with blistering clarity. And that's that there's a problem here. Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done. And the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Sorry, Scott, can you change the slide? My clicker's not working. Thank you. Verse 17 is even stronger. He says, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. The wise preacher has tried it all, he's seen it all, he's done it all. He's chased pleasure and possessions as far as he possibly could, but they've just left him empty. But now he's told us what he's done and what he's realized, but he hasn't really told us what it is about pleasure and possessions that make them so disappointing. I hope you've taken up the challenge I gave last week to try and read Ecclesiastes through in one go. I know that as you do that, what you'll find is that it's almost like a stream of consciousness thing the preacher's doing. It's it's a book that doesn't really go anywhere. By the time you get to the end, you you end up basically back where you start. Also, it's hard to see where one section ends and where another section begins because he keeps going somewhere and then circling back to the same issue. He keeps coming back to certain themes like wealth and work as he mulls over life under the sun. And so as we go on in Ecclesiastes, we we do find the preacher returning to the themes of chapter 2. And he explains there why possessions and pleasure are so futile, so airy. And I think he shows us particularly two reasons why they are just vanity. The first is that we can never have enough. We can never have enough. We saw in chapter 1 what a weariness it was that the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. Chapter 1, verse 8. In verse 5, the preacher tells us, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. 
In chapter 6, he says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. See, friends, our hearts are like a bottomless pit that we just keep trying to fill with just a little more, just a little more, just a little more. And we can never have enough. It's the first reason why possessions and pleasure are so futile. The second thing, the second reason, is that we can't keep what we have. When it comes to pleasure, it only lasts a moment, and it's gone. We've got to go back to work on Monday morning to pay for the fun of the weekend. And while you're working to pay for the pleasure, you can't enjoy the pleasure. When it comes to possessions, what's here today is so easily gone tomorrow. The preacher tells us in chapter 5, There is a grievous evil I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And whether it's a bad venture, or a change in economic conditions, or a a major unexpected expense, or even just the depreciating and weathering effects of time. What we have doesn't last. There are a few families in our church who've seen fortunes come and go. You know this is true through bitter experience. And perhaps more tragic than that, even if our wealth does appear to last, unfortunately, we don't. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. What gain is there to him who toils for the wind? It's Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 15 and 16. What we used to have, what we have now, what we may have in the future, at the end of it all, It's just breath. It's just mist. And it's about as easy to grab hold of and hold on to. Now, as we said last week, the preacher isn't interested in giving us easy answers to life. He's interested in getting us to face the hard realities of life under the sun and to sit in it for a while, to consider whether it's true or not. He's He's inviting us to weigh up his evidence weigh up his conclusions, and decide for ourselves what is the right way to live. He's done all the spade work for us so that we can live well based on his conclusions. So do you believe what the preacher says when he says that pleasure and possessions are just not enough for life? I think the irony is that, though we hear the warnings of the clear evidence of the preacher's reasoning, we still too easily persist in chasing the wind. He's proven at his own significant expense that a man can actually have it all, but literally have nothing. But we still like to live like like little children pushing their luck, saying, can I just have have one more? Just, Just one more? Just one more toy? Just that car, just that house, just that phone, just those shoes, just that holiday. 
as if those things will make us a little more happy, give us a little more meaning, a little more purpose. Remember, the preacher had done it all, and that's not an understatement. He tried it all, he's seen it all, more than we could possibly imagine. And at the end of it all, he still says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, striving after wind, and there's nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, I realize all this could be pretty depressing stuff, and thank you for coming back for a third week. But because the Bible's one story, we're trying to ground what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes with the words of Jesus in the New Testament each week. Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. The New Testament tells us in Colossians 3 that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, Jesus is actually the fulfillment of biblical wisdom. Thanks, Scott. You can do the next slide, please. Thank you. So please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 10. And we'll look at Mark chapter 10 from verse 17. I won't get to read the whole story, but just to get the gist of it. The story is about a rich young man who comes up to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? He's really asking Jesus, Jesus, how can I go to heaven when I die? And Jesus says to him, well, you've just got to keep all the Old Testament commandments. And so we discover the, the rich boy is also a good boy, and he says, well, I've done all of that. At least he says he has. So he's looking for something else beyond law-keeping. And then in verse 17, sorry, verse 21, Mark tells us, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And it says, disheartened by the same, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And of course, you can read the rest of the story in your own time. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is right, saying that there is nothing of, nothing of real treasure, lasting worth and value under the sun. Jesus confirms this, but Jesus actually offers a treasure that does last. Treasure that's got a value beyond anything we can comprehend. This treasure isn't under the sun, but it is under God's sun. Only the wealth that we try to vainly hold on to here acts like a dragging anchor, keeping us from truly enjoying and experiencing treasure in heaven with Jesus. That's because, like, like the rich young man, as long as we're trying to hold our wealth in one hand and Jesus in the other, we end up enjoying neither. Truly trust our lives to Jesus as the one who forgives our sins, who gives us access to the Father, who gives our lives purpose and meaning, not just under the sun, but forever. 
We have to let go of trying to find our security and our justification and our meaning and our purpose and our goals or anything else in this world's wealth and the things that we can hold in our hands. Now, of course, selling everything and following Jesus does sound dramatic. I don't think that's a paradigm necessarily for following Jesus. But because Jesus is aiming at the heart, he's not aiming at the bank balance. The question is really, if Jesus did ask you, would you be willing to sell everything you have and follow Jesus? It's a good diagnostic question. Or would you still want to keep chasing the wind? Now, we live in one of the most affluent parts of one of the most affluent countries in the world. And the temptation to chase the winds of pleasures and possessions, to accumulate stuff and experiences for ourselves, it's very hard. The preacher shows that you can literally have everything in this life and actually have absolutely nothing. By contrast, Jesus shows that you can actually have nothing in this life and actually have everything forever. How about we pray? Our Lord and God, our provider, we thank you for how generous you are to us. We so often have more than we need or even ask for. Please help us to never love your gifts more than you, the giver. Help us to be grateful for much and content with little. And to let our pleasures and possessions come and go easily in our lives as we firmly cling to the treasure we have in heaven in the Lord Jesus. And please let us show the world around us a better way to live than foolishly chasing the wind. And in doing so, let us show the world the lasting treasure of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For his sake and in his name we pray. Amen.